everyone, and thanks for joining me on State of the Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Michelle Hartney. And for those of you who are confused, State of the Art decided to expand their niche beyond art and tech to include a variety of topics which have shaped the state of art as we know it today. With this in mind, I've been invited to take the podcast over for a month-long discussion exploring art and morality. This topic could take us into many different directions. We're going to narrow it down and focus on gender and racism in the art world. In this episode, we speak with art historian, Dr. Catherine McCormack, about women in art history. McCormack is a London-based art history lecturer and writer on historical and contemporary art. She completed her PhD at University College London, where she was a teaching fellow in the art history department, and she lectures for Sotheby's Institute on art from the 15th to 19th centuries. Alongside her historical specialisms, she also has an interest in feminist art theory. Catherine has presented her historical research in numerous conferences internationally and has published her writing in both academic journals and in museum and gallery catalogs on contemporary art. Catherine's upcoming book, Women in the Picture, which is being published by Icon Books in April of 2020, is a feminist polemic about objectification in women's bodies and visual culture. Catherine, welcome to State of the Art Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor. Okay, so I'd love to start off by asking you, what made you start looking at art history through a feminist lens? Well, it's something that um, I always studied at university. I was very lucky at University College London that you mentioned as an undergrad back at the very beginning of the 21st century, I was taught by some leading feminist art historians who really opened my eyes to how I had seen the world up until that point um, to becoming a young adult and the things that I'd really taken for granted about the status of women, both politically and how they were represented in visual culture and paintings, particularly in historical paintings. Um, And this professor was Professor Tamar Garb, who um, has, this professor was Professor Tamar Garb, who I've remained close to in my thinking from um, those early moments that she introduced me and opened my eyes as a young adult. Um, The other very significant person within that academic field is uh, Professor Griselda Pollock. And I remember going to an exhibition at the Hayward Gallery in London, and it must have been around 1999, maybe 2000, um, in London. And it was this remarkable exhibition about prostitution on borders. And I heard her speaking and I thought, I want to be like that. I want to do what she's doing. And I want to talk about the things that she talks about and learn more about this. And then I kind of got led down another path and started studying the Renaissance. And so in a way, this is something I've come back to because of the political urgency of this moment that I think that um, while there was a moment in the 70s and 80s where academic feminists were writing about art history and the historical depiction of women's bodies, I don't think that this trickled down to a general public. And now there's much more of a focused, renewed interest in reconsidering these ideas and bringing them out of their academic circles, especially in light of things such as the Me Too movement that started off 
um, at the end of 2017, and also the renewed assaults on women's bodies and the objectification of them and intervention on women's bodies that we have from things in Trumpist America, which are also occurring in Europe on my side of the pond perhaps not in the UK, but there's definitely the influence of other countries within the United Kingdom, such as Northern Ireland, which remains a continuous thorny presence in trying to interrupt the work that has been done in order to protect women's liberties when it comes to their own bodies. Um, and so therefore, I think that by taking this background I had in considering the all the great um, by taking this background of all the great texts and theory that I was exposed to as a young adult, I really want to be able to communicate this in a different way to a much more general audience um, that don't necessarily have to visit an avant-garde gallery to, to hear about these things. I, I, I think it's really important that it becomes a more general discussion. Let's talk about the male gaze, a term that yeah. is increasingly being used uh, when discussing art. For those uh -huh. listeners who may not be familiar with this term, can you first just quickly define it and then talk about how this term applies to what we're seeing in art museums? Sure. Um, so I think the male gaze is a term that's been around um, for a long time, since the late 70s, early 80s. It was Laura Mulvey, who was actually a, um, a feminist film historian, who first started using the terminology. And the idea behind it is that everything we see that's presented to us in visual format is made for a male, implied male spectator. So she was specifically talking about it in terms of Hollywood films, where um, the whole narrative, all of the characters, um, especially the idea of the presentation of women characters are laid out for the pleasure of an implied male spectator. So women um, perform as objects of pleasure or as accessories to the main drama. That was then taken up by um, art historians to um, start to unravel the assumptions that we don't always see when we're looking at images in an art gallery. So um, when it comes to the depiction of women in art history, I think it's been a history of how women look and not how they actually see themselves. And that's absolutely, um, that's that has been absolutely influenced by this idea of the implied male spectator. Now, I find that um, once your eyes are open to it, or once my eyes became attuned to it, Everywhere I look in a public art collection, I see images of female nudes. And somehow this has become a pinnacle of high culture. Um, it's an expression of the absolute fountainhead of um, artistic beauty and cultural expression. And um, when really these, when really we have been when really we have stopped seeing them as um, the images that they really are, which is mildly pornographic um, in, with the intent of pleasing and satisfying the sexual gaze of an implied male spectator. Um, and I think that's part of a, a wider issue of the depiction of women in art who've been framed by uh, mostly a male creator, a male artist into certain archetypes, um, whether that's the mother, the ingenue, the figure of Venus, 
or monsters and whores and hags, and especially in bodies like the body of Eve, um, you see a real expression of a patriarchal fear of women, which which is very um, um, which is something that we can relate back to a, a number of cultural moments that come from our understanding of the Bible. Um, and I think this has been really normalized and we don't, we become immune to looking underneath the surface and really seeing these images of women for what they really are. Rape is a subject that male artists seem to love painting about and making sculptures about. One of the things you mention in your upcoming book is the way women are framed by culture and the ways that violence and abuse against women has been normalized by <laughs> the images that we see have historically been labeled as beautiful. Um, uh -huh. So is there a specific piece? I'm sure there are many pieces that you can talk about, but um, is there a piece you can kind of walk us through that the subject matter is about rape, but the way it's presented is just not the way you think one would represent, uh, talk about rape? Sure. I think there's a number of examples from classical mythology and the one that I'm really interested in at the moment for obvious reasons regarding what's happening at our moment in Europe with the whole Brexit debacle, and we are really considering our relationship with the continent and um, geographical and political space that's known as Europe, is the story of the rape of Europa, which is a story that has existed for millennia. It's a story that came out of um, Crete, very ancient Crete, and then was adopted by um, the ancient Greeks and written about in Herodotus's histories, um, and something that was adopted in the Renaissance from the 16th century onwards as a very popular subject matter. And it tells the story of a young princess from Lebanon who is abducted by the god Jupiter. So the Roman god Jupiter or the Greek god Zeus, the Greek version would be Zeus, um, who appears to her in the form of a bull. And he then um, abducts um, this princess and uh, carries her away with him. And she is then used as the mother to sire a new generation and to form a new nation state, which eventually becomes Europe. Um, and I think that the fact that that story is on the back of monetary currency is something that should be troubling us more than it does that we take for granted that, you know, potentially there are, um, you know, there's millions and millions of people walking around with an image of rape in their purses right now or as coins in their pockets and it's used as a form of exchange. Um, I think we don't talk about the um, assault or the, I don't think we don't talk about the violence behind that and the way that that's been celebrated as a, as, as a moment of nation building. One of the paintings that comes to mind is a painting by the Venetian Renaissance artist Titian, and it's a painting called The Rape of Europa, so it deals specifically with the subject. Europa is lying um, or reclining uh, backwards in a very passive way with her legs slightly spread. It reminds me a little bit of that Belt Beltus image that uh, there was a lot of fuss made about in the Met and the request to remove it because it had um, 
inappropriately sexualized um, uh, a, an adolescent girl or a pre-adolescent girl. It's a similar thing. It's that kind of upskirting uh, view. And she's uh, lying back on the god who's in the form of a bull with flowers on his horns. And it's not presented by collections or by art histories in any books that you will read as anything that is troublesome. But for me, I think we need to ask questions as to why do we see that as an object of beauty? And moreover, why does it become something that is part of our mythologies that we tell ourselves about the histories of our nation building and and our identities um there are other rapes i could talk about there's the rape of pluto and the rape of proserpina by the god pluto who was the god of the underworld who abducted proserpina and that story of abduction is an explanation for the seasons so in the ancient world that was a mythological story that would explain the phenomena of the climate changing from one part of the year to another um, with the wet and cold and inhospitable season being the time when Proserpina's mother knows that her daughter is the sexual slave of the god of the underworld and so on earth she is weeping and when she's returned to her for another six months of the year that's when the sun comes out and the harvest comes in and the flowers bloom and all of those things when the earth comes alive again and i think we don't question those and they our, our whole sense of time our whole sense of the weather our whole sense of the continents and the geopolitics of our continents um, are informed by these historical stories that we continue to admire at high value in um, in, in our public collections. Um, and I think that this sexual violence, we can't, we can't attribute the continuing contemporary sexual violence to women across the globe and the statistics that I don't have to hand right now, but the horrific fact that there are the number of rapes there are, for example, in the USA every single day, or the number of women who are sexually assaulted every single day um, around the world. I think that we can't blame paintings and galleries for that. That would seem ridiculous. But the fact that it's normalized within high culture and a high value is attached to these images, I think it's an important thing to break down and recontextualize. Well, since we mentioned Balthus, I'm going to go there for a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's go there. Yeah, let's go there. So uh, just to set the question up a little bit to, for anyone who might not know this story about, I think a year and a half ago, a petition was created to either contextualize or remove a painting by Balthus that was showing at the Met in New York. Uh, to give a little background about the piece um, and about the artist, he's a European artist who is now deceased. He's known for his paintings that depict young girls in often a sexualized manner, sometimes showing them with their legs spread open, um, sometimes with their underwear showing. The Met refused to respond to the petition, so they um, didn't take it down or contextualize it. Um, so that brings up the topic of censorship, which is mm -hmm. we can't censor mm -hmm. artwork. Um, but what are your feelings about how we deal with problematic work like this? Mm -hmm. It's a really, it's an excellent question because... It's a debate that I have found has been really divisive. And I think there are 
the voices from maybe the art establishment and by that I mean a number of art critics and literary writers have been very quick to say art is free it should never be censored even if it expresses the darker aspects of our humanity that we might not find tolerable there still needs to be a space for those to have an outlet um and while in sentiment, I can see why that liberal thinking would allow for a sympathetic response to anything can go in art because art is art. I don't find it convincing because I think that um, it should be absolutely necessary. I don't think anyone should walk into the space of a public museum and be confronted with images that make them feel uncomfortable in that way um now we're always going to see things and we're going to watch things and we're going to read books that make us feel uncomfortable because they tell us about aspects of humanity that we don't necessarily want to face um but i think that image in particular is so blatantly about sexual exploitation of a minor that i think we have such a um I think we have we we find that so intolerable in every you know aspect of of life and something that is a taboo that I don't think is worth crossing and protecting at all. Um, I think that these paintings can become um, there's a phrase I have for it. I think they become martyred objects. I think that once people start unpicking them and suggesting censorship and it's an issue that comes up continuously and often the response is oh well what are we going to do are we going to burn all of the titians just because we don't like the way that um there's someone who is um under the age of 18 in the image or it's referencing someone who looks like a younger body who's before the age of consent um and these objects people are very quick to say oh but they're so beautiful and and thus an excuse is made for them um and that's something that i don't buy at all um there was a similar example that happened in the uk at um manchester at the Metropolitan Museum of Manchester, and it was a painting by the Victorian painter uh, Waterhouse, and that was called Hylas and the Nymphs, and it's very interesting when you go onto the museum's website and you see the comments page, and you see the very, very incensed responses to people, um, the very, very incensed responses from people, um, when this painting was removed temporarily to leave a space on the wall that the audience or the uh, that the gallery audience could comment on the absence of the painting it wasn't taken away because of any complaints but it is an image that shows um a number of topless young women in some water um and it was put there to raise a question as to which images we have on show, which images that we have kept away, hidden in vaults, who gets to decide and who is being represented here. And so that was what the, that's what the whole ethos was of the project of removing, removing the image temporarily and leaving a blank space. Um, and it was met with such kind of violent responses that I, I find it really interesting that the defence of beauty is one of them. And it's very often 
um, put in contrast to what women artists do, um, and especially avant-garde women artists and feminist artists of the late 20th century. Um, and it, it really is a very divisive and, and polarizing debate. Um, in terms of what I think we should do, I personally don't think that the Balthus image should be removed. But I think that wall texts and gallery wall texts, and I know this is something that you feel strongly about as well, because it comes into your own practice, need to be revised, not with trigger warnings, because the material might offend someone um, and their sensibility, but just to, but just to suggest that this is problematic is enough, I think, um, just to not let it slip under the radar as something which is normal and can be excused. Um, because I think images have real power, and I don't think we always give them that credit, that they have real power to inform us of our relationship with ourselves, with society. We know that it's through looking as children and the images that we see and the um images of people that we might aspire to or the sorts of behavior that we aspire to i don't think these images should be censored or removed i think they need to be contextualized because i think they have a real power over the relationship that we have with what is made to seem normal um now lots of women myself included who grew up in the 80s and 90s are you there because the screen is frozen? Are you receiving all of this? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Lots of us, um, myself included, who grew up in the 80s and 90s, grew up with a range of images in advertising that completely conditioned my expectations of what my life would be like as an adult woman and the trajectory that my life was intended to take. And that's something that is learned through both Hollywood films, cartoons, princess stories, Disney and magazine culture that um, conditions women for moving from schoolgirl into sexy, attractive, pretty um, in order to find a husband, settle down, become a mother and continue it with a life of great consumer project products and great makeup. Um, and I think that paintings and galleries, they seem like they are not related, but I think they absolutely are. I think that um, even more so, they suggest, um, I think even more so, the images that we see in galleries become aspirational because of their cultural value and because they seem important by virtue of their context. Um, and I think they normalise things that, are, that, that we would find intolerable outside of the gallery in everyday life. So I think contextualization and not censorship, I think there's a huge difference between the two. And I would really like to see galleries doing more to open up those questions and not just presume what people are comfortable with seeing. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so there's been a lot of talk lately about separating the art from the artist. And uh. we're, <laughs> we're finally beginning to acknowledge the bad behavior of creative yeah. men who have been worshipped and placed on these high pedestals while we turn a blind eye to the horrible ways that they've treated women. women. So men like Woody Allen and Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. and Picasso. I could keep going on and on and on. Um, I'll stop there. Uh, but <laughs> there's been a lot of talk about 
what do we do with these men, especially um, how we handle the men that are currently alive and then the men like Picasso who have passed on? Um, I know you talked about, obviously, we need to contextualize work when, that we see in museums. But what about when an artist like Chuck Close is alive uh-huh. or the comedian Louis C.K., they're alive and people feel bad for them because this is going to hurt their career and their finances and they get all this sympathy. Um, So what do we do with them? Are they done? Or I know that's a hard question. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. And I actually feel like that's a question that I have a a really a lot to say. Um, I think I'll start with thinking about the artists who are alive, such as Chuck Close. And then I'd really like to talk about what we do with people like Picasso, because he, really was an inspiration for my book project um, when I visited his recent exhibition in London that was on in 2017 at Tate Modern. Um, That was a real tipping point for me in order to start putting down in words the thoughts I was having. But first I'll talk about Chuck Close um, because I think that the um, it was the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts had a really great response to the allegations of sexual misconduct that accompanied the exhibition that was on show there and they decided not to take the work down I believe but they um, created an alternative timeline of women artists that accompanied the show uh, as a way of creating a space to um, reveal different histories of art outside of these mythologized monster giants of contemporary and historical art that seem to um, garner all of the attention and, as you rightly said, all of the sympathy and all of the forgiveness um, because their work somehow is held up as being an example of the best of what humanity can be and the best of what creation can be. Um, So I think it raises an interesting point that I'd like to talk about, which is how in literary criticism in the 20th century there was a separation of the artist from their autobiography and that's in Roland Barthes um, who um, put forward the idea of the death of the author or Roland Barthes who wrote the death of the author as a um, new approach in, in literary criticism that would stop people concentrating on the um, histories of individuals who produce works and allow the opportunity for a work, whether that's a piece of literature or a film or a painting or a photograph, to have its own life outside of its connections with the author. So I think that's a really interesting um, frame in which to, um, to, to think about this through, because very often the art history that I practice and that I preach and the way in which I was taught really moves away from the sorts of essay writing where you'd say Caravaggio was born in blah 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 and he wants you know use the evidence of their life um or excuse me to use the conditions of their life as evidence to explain what was going on in their art so I think that I would always move away from that and I like to think about images in a far more um, varied way than whether the artist actually intended for that meaning to be in it which is um, another 
assault often on creative interpretation of artworks. People say, oh, well, did he mean for it to be like that? Or did Shakespeare really mean us to be having a conversation about um, uh, something that seems unrelated? Um, so I think that that's that's one that idea of separating the artist's autobiography from 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 their work is an important thing to consider. But when an artist conducts himself in ways in which we find morally difficult and criminal or reprehensible, for example, things like the sexual exploitation of minors, um, and their work might have direct um, examples or allusions to that, then I think we cannot excuse those sorts of crimes because the work is good or valuable or attractive. I think that says a lot about the vanity of our society that we're willing to forgive um, people because they make good things. Um, and I think that will depend on a shift in cultural attitudes, that it becomes uh, eventually taboo to have works of a certain uh, nature in, in a collection um, that will mean that these artists will lose their value on the market, which ultimately is the only way that their work will be undermined as if it decreases in value. Um, but it's not a straightforward question, I think, and it's, um, it's, it's a complex one because, as I sort of alluded to before, I think as humans we all have a capacity for dark and light and, and good and evil, and, and that's something that is at the very core of what it means to be human. Um, and I think it does ask us uncomfortable questions about what um, what we're prepared to overlook in the face of the power of creation and whether it's because it's beautiful or whether it's because it's um, important to us in other ways that tell us another aspect about about our humanity, um, I think it's a very, very complex conundrum. Um, and I know that, our, um, well, I know that in particular the writer Claire Dederer, I hope I've pronounced her name correctly, but she wrote about Woody Allen, as you mentioned, um, in the Paris Review, I think it was last year. And I liked the angle that she introduced to the conversation as well, which is the idea of monstrous women. And I think that it would be interesting to think about monstrous women and what they produce and how we separate them from their work. Because culturally, we don't have many examples of monstrous women. Going back to this idea of the depiction of women in art history and the archetypes in which they are framed, the archetype of the female monster is incredibly common, whether that's through the um, sexy vampire of the 19th century that will suck the life force out of uh, men, or whether it's the figure of Eve who becomes monstrous physically because she was tempted to eat from the tree of knowledge and precipitated the downfall of mankind, um, to then monsters from classical mythology such as Medusa, the snake-haired Gorgon Queen. Um, so we are familiar with women monsters um, in our cultural representations, but we are not familiar with female monsters who also create things that we might admire. And I think that that is one of the places where we could make some really progressive and productive inroads into gender, into the way we think about um, male, female um, 
artists or the way we think about gender, the gender of our artists and that being an issue, I think is to, to maybe tease out how we might deal with female monsters to, to rebalance the, the conversation. So our critics have said that if we start contextualizing art because the artist who made it did horrible things, then museums would have to contextualize the majority of their collections. That's some of the criticism. Yeah. Do you think that's where we're headed? What I would like to see is I would like to, so for example, the gallery that I visit the most in London through my teaching and provides a very rich snapshot of how I think collections are not neutral um, is the National Gallery in London, in Trafalgar Square. And I think that they, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, they promote the romantic objectification of the female nude especially I'm thinking about Velasquez's Rigby Venus um, which is a painting I write about a lot in my book and how this was a target for suffragettes in the early 20th century but going back to your question the idea of contextualization I think you could you don't have to go into the details of an artist every artist's um sexual history for example um but i think we need to have a conversation about why or how women were conceived of in the 17th century for example and so you have either temporary displays or you group together a collection of works of a female nude or a specific female archetype and you start the conversation that can be told as a narrative through the way in which you hang the collection. I mean, it's a very obvious thing. It's what curators do all the time because what you put things next to creates meaning. And I think that you um, a language that can be more easily understood starts to emerge if you put paintings of a similar nature together that deal with a specific issue, for example, the way in which sexual violence has been glorified and aestheticized. And I think we can if you were to put all of those into one gallery and open up a conversation about it, I think it would make a really big impact to the way people see works more generally. Um, So I don't think it has to be this bonfire of the vanities that um, art critics fear. I think it speaks a lot about their own prejudices. I think that um, people's responses especially when they are very dramatic responses, um, say more about them than the question that they are considering quite a lot of the time. Um, And why not make it into a bigger deal? I mean, we're trying to do that with race as well, right? And decolonialising our collections um, by rehanging them, taking other works out of storage, actively investing in the in actively investing in works by underrepresented members of society who also practice as artists but don't reach the visibility that 
Chuck Close and Picasso and Titian continue to garner. And to be honest, do we need any more exhibitions on Picasso? I don't think we do. I think I want to see exhibitions on Harriet Powers, the African-American quilt maker. I want to see more exhibitions by women artists. Um, and thankfully, things are changing a little bit. I know you, you wanted to ask me about that. So may, I'll save that. Um, until <laughs> when you want to talk about it in the interview. But, um, you know, I think things are changing a little bit in, in the UK, from my perspective, at least. Um, yeah, I, I increasingly find myself, quite frankly, bored when I walk through a lot of museums because I've, I've seen these pieces over and over and over, and I would like to see different works of art by different artists. Um, mm. hmm. So kind yeah. of going along that line, um, there are museums in the U.S., not many, but there are some who are selling off pieces by white male artists mm. to create funds to diversify their collections so they can mm -hmm. acquire art by women or people of mm -hmm. color or people from the LGBT community, which is controversial. Um, is that yeah. happening in any U.K. museums that you know of? Well, it's so interesting you asked me that because that was um, a, a question that was raised today when I was at work. I was um, doing an in-conversation event at Sotheby's Institute as part of the Bedford Square Festival, um, which is an arts and literary event in, in London's Bloomsbury, which is the heart of... Um, kind of has lots of historic associations with art history and... Um, education and intellectual history and I thought it was a really interesting question but I'm not aware of anything that is happening of that nature um I my initial response to it as an idea was that it continues to promote an ingrained or accept an ingrained imbalance and just to promote, continue to promote the fact that men's work might be of more value. If you think, oh, we can sell one Picasso and for that we can get five works by women artists, I think it doesn't, re it may redress the visibility within collections, but it doesn't redress the value system. So I think that's where it's, um, it's a conundrum for me. I don't know how, what the sort of responses have been on your side of the argument. Have there been um, similar responses in that nature or yeah, what have people I, been saying? I think the response is, has been split. Um, uh, I think just regardless of looking at the, um, you know, the gender and racial element of it, people, um, I think when, when museums are selling off pieces of work, just mm. to, to sell them off. A lot of people have a problem with that. So um, yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a mixed response. Racing. Mm. Last year, Hannah Gadsby, a comedian from Tasmania, made waves with her incredible Netflix special, Nanette. For our listeners who may not have seen it, Hannah focused her special on homophobia, sexism, abuse, and rape. Hannah also happens to have studied art history, and she spent some time talking about Picasso, who is probably one of the worst offenders in the 20th century in terms of uh, his treatment of women. So um, this leaves us with the Me Too movement, and I'm wondering your thoughts on, have, would we be entering these conversations? Would Hannah Gadsby even have made any headlines if 
the Me Too movement had not even happened, would we be talking about Picasso on a global scale, scale about the misogyny um, that he's known for if Me Too hadn't happened? Interesting question. I, I'm for us in the UK, Me Too coincided with the or the beginning of Me or Me Too breaking, shall we say, at the end of 2017, coincided with rolling into 2018 as a year in which we were celebrating the centenary of women over 30 having the vote in the UK. So. I think that it felt like there was a really big wave of momentum and I think it uh, it, it created a lot of energy around um, the issues that were brought up by Me Too. Um, so in a lot of collections that were both um, public collections of art, such as the National Gallery, um, but then also smaller institutions that might um, be the, oh, I don't know, um, the Royal Society of Physicians or smaller collections and institutions, it seemed like everybody was having a display about women and women's history. And so it felt like there was a real urgency. And I think it definitely gave a whole buoyancy to um, to the way in which Me Too became a, a lens through which we started to look at everything and the arrangement of everything in culture and um gave a lot of energy to those voices. Um, and I just, I hope that this is not something that was short-lived because of that anniversary that we celebrated for female suffrage. Um, I think I've really noticed that some institutions such as uh, the Tate have had a complete commitment to um, showing um, um, shows solo shows by women artists um, and if you look at um, their website and you look at their programming I think that they've really achieved this parity of 50-50 and even perhaps weighted more in terms of showing solo shows of women and that's not been without criticism I think some um, as there was criticism when women got the vote they said well it's not fair because lots of men died in the first world war and um, they don't have a chance to have something to say um, in government because there'll be less men and now there's going to be more women able to vote and it seems like that's a that goes back to the previous point about should we be selling off male work in order to buy more women's work or work of people from um, minority groups who are not traditionally represented in these collections um and i think this idea of is women's work different to men's work is something that is is really urgent to, to, to think about and something that we didn't tackle perhaps in that part of the conversation that we should have done um but Hannah Gadsby raised that line, which now I can't get out of my head, of um, Picasso and his like creating flesh vases for their dick flowers. And it's something that I think burns through all of the highbrow academic feminism that um, can alienate people. It puts in really simple terms all these ideas about the male gaze that we started off talking about, the idea that women have traditionally existed in paintings for the pleasure of a male viewer. Um, and alongside 
And that's something that can be lifted from art history and Netflix comedy into other political movements that revolve around gender that we also have in the UK, such as the Everyday Sexism Project, which I imagine you might have something similar in the US, which is um, a interface in which women can share casual sexist remarks and behavior um, and tweet about them and make it something that becomes an inescapable and unavoidable um, issue because of the sheer volume of responses to it. So um, I think that Gadsby was opening a lid on something and I think that the political conditions for it made it a very ripe time to accept it. But I'm so glad that she chose art history because I think it's such a rich territory for us to understand our historical relationship with the way women's bodies have been represented and the way in which we forgive men for doing it in that way um and for people like Picasso who just continues to be a mythologized modern master whose work sells for vast sums I mean I was just talking about this yesterday how in 2018 two of the highest if not the highest grossing paintings that went to auction were a Modigliani of a female nude and a Picasso of a teenager with no clothes on holding a bunch of flowers and I think that if that's what we're giving, if we're throwing money at flesh vases for dick flowers, then as a society, we've got a lot of work to do. We do. <laughs> we really do. <laughs> oh my goodness, we have run out of time and I have so much more I want to talk to you about. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us on State of the Art Podcast. You can learn more about Catherine McCormack at her website, this is katherinemccormack.com or follow her on Instagram at women in the picture. You can also go on State of the Art's website and find those links. Be sure to tune in next week. It's going to be an exciting episode. We will be discussing sexism and racism at the institutional level in the art world with one of the original members of the Gorilla Girls. So be sure to tune in next week. <laughs>